I like it. We got some clapping going on. Gosh. I love you, 11 o'clock. Right, yeah. I always, uh, you know, 9 o'clock I check in. Are you awake yet after worship? And you guys are already clapping along. This is so encouraging. I feel like I go on for hours now, and I've got your attention. So uh, anyway, we're going to go into a time of teaching. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met, I look forward to that. But um, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week. Uh, but for those of you who are brand new, whether you're here or out in the patio, uh, you may not know that. So I want to encourage you to take that out. And then if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be in your house underneath your leadership of your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that today as we uh, begin to talk about the next life and the reality of the next life and this destiny that we step into the moment we come to you, we pray that you would make these things real to us. Like, like Paul prayed that the eyes of our heart would be open to the reality. We just pray for that today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today uh, early in the morning. And uh, not, not super early, not like a crack of dawn, but, but they've all been called to come to this meeting and uh, to meet with their leaders for a sort of an emergency type meeting. And it was about a month ago that they set out on this journey. In fact, it was a month ago today that they set out on this journey. And, and when they, they set out, they, they knew it wasn't going to be easy, but uh, they had high hopes and great expectations for their future. Um, and so they, they launched in. They knew there's some challenges. I mean, they're going to be sleeping outdoors. It's the winter. It's going to be chilly at night. Uh, they're going to be traveling during the day. The, the heat is going to get up in the day. And yet, yet uh, they're, they're kind of all prepared for that. But what they weren't prepared for is some of the challenges they've been recently meeting. And, and some of the biggest ones are just, they're just running out of some of their core supplies. Uh, water's in uh, short supply. Uh, there's not, not a lot of food left. And they're beginning to get concerned. And so it's for this reason that their, their leaders have called this emergency meeting to address these very legitimate concerns. But when they arrive there at the meeting, in the midst of the meeting, something happens that takes uh, all their breath away. And, and ever from the, forevermore, looking back on this day, it's not going to be so much the meeting that they remember, but what happened in the middle of the meeting. Well, today we're continuing the series that we've been in now for the last three weeks. It's called Supernatural, Discovering Your True Identity. If you're, you're brand new, I want to welcome you. Uh, the core concept behind this, this series, as I've shared every week, is that according to the Bible, according to Jesus, the New Testament, that, that when a man or woman steps over the line, we become a follower of Jesus, something happens to us. Um, it's something that is very deep. It's something that's incredibly profound, something that's powerful, something that is truly supernatural. And with this change, we, we receive a whole new identity, and that identity takes in a kind of a new calling. It's a, a new power in our life, a new capacity to change. Uh, there's a new perspective, a new purpose. We enter a new community. We have a new relationship with the outside culture. We also pick up a new enemy, and we have a new destiny. And so what we're doing in this series is each week we're just exploring this new identity that, that we receive when we come to Jesus um, and, and taking a look at kind of piece at a time uh, what, what it looks like and discovering who we are, what it means to be part of this epic vision that we talked about last week. And so today we come to the topic on the table is our new destiny. 
on kind of the future that God has planned for us when we come for, to Jesus. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Supernatural, A New Destiny. Now today, we're going to approach this a little bit differently uh, than normal. If you're a regular here, you know that typically after our intro, we, we go to a passage of scripture, we take some time to unpack it, uh, and then we say, what are the key principles, life lessons, uh, realities that we need to kind of apply to our lives, and we, 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 uh, we dive into those. But today we're doing it kind of the flip side. We're doing it the opposite way. Uh, then we're going to start with several principles, what the Bible teaches about the next life. And then we're going to come back uh, after each one, after introducing each one, and look at some, some key scriptures that kind of elucidate, uh, illustrate, reveal that, that key principle. So we're going to just going to jump in. And so you've got the section there, Supernatural New Destiny. Let's just jump in. We're going to start with the basics, all right? So number one, the first thing that Jesus and New Testament teach, we, we open up his pages, about this future destiny is that the next life is real. It's not hypothetical, it's not just theological. The next life is very real. And so one of the things that Jesus teaches, this is not on your note sheet, but in John chapter five, is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, that we step over this invisible line in the spiritual realm between spiritual death and spiritual life. And that for those that come to Jesus at the end of time, he promises later on in that chapter that he will resurrect us at the end of time. So the next life is very real. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very physical. Uh, it's coming in the future. And the corollary of that, according to Jesus, is since the next life is long and this life is short, it only makes sense to live this life for that life. It should impact every area of our lives. Now, one of the things that I've taught you over the years is that when you come to the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, but especially Jesus, when you come to the teaching of Jesus, uh, that it's impossible to make sense of it apart from this reality of the next life. And what we're going to see today is that for Jesus, like I said, the next life wasn't just like theological or theoretical. It was just, it was just reality. It was as real to him as uh, the fact that day follows night. You know, like, like uh, tomorrow, I'm sure you all have plans for tomorrow. And uh, you're not kind of waiting up tonight and say, I believe the sun is coming up tomorrow. Uh, I'm not really sure, but I do believe it. And if it does, uh, this is what I'm going to do. It's just like it's so real that we don't really think in those terms. It's just, hey, tomorrow morning we're going to get up. It's going to be the new day. And in a similar way for Jesus, when he thinks about the next life, it's just, it's just the reality. It's just as sure as after high school comes career or college. It's just, it's just what happens next to us. And this assumption uh, stands behind all of his teaching. It's impossible to really understand the teaching of Jesus without understanding this core assumption and backdrop. And if we had time for this today, I would love to just take you through. In fact, in my original drafts, I had several examples. We just don't have time. But uh, to take you through and walk you through, it doesn't matter whether it's his short kind of epigrammic uh, uh, type teaching or his proverbial teaching, whether it's his longer short stories, whether he's talking with his disciples or the crowds, whether he's responding to his critics, that this is constantly in the background, constantly there providing context for what he's teaching. But I do want to give you just one quick example just to illustrate this. It's very clear. It's in Luke chapter 9, there in your note sheet where Jesus says, he says to the crowds, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Like to be incredibly successful in this life, but to lose or forfeit their very self. 
He says, so whoever's, for example, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, the son of man, which is his name for himself, that he'll be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, right, at the end of the time, and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Remember that word glory. That'll become important later on. But Jesus says, hey, uh, what is it, what good does it do someone that they're incredibly successful, however you want to measure it, in this life, if when I return, they're on the wrong side of me, on the wrong side of eternity, right? And this was his constant assumption. The next life is coming. It's very real. Uh, and so we need to, it, the next life is long. This life is short. We need to be living this life in light of the next life. Now, as you go out in the New Testament, of course, all of his followers share this same view because for them, this was no longer theory, like before the coming of Jesus, everyone had their opinions about the next life. The Egyptians had their opinion. The Greeks had their opinion. Stoic philosophers had their opinion. Jews had their opinion. But, the, but after Jesus rose from the dead, it settled those issues. And for the early believers in Jesus, they're no longer afraid of death because, you know, death isn't the end. You just step into the next life. Look, Jesus already proved it, right? And so uh, this is where we begin, that that for us as followers of Jesus, the moment we give our life to Jesus, we step from spiritual death into spiritual life, and we step into this, we receive this new destiny in the next life. Now, number two, we're gonna build on that. This one, this one was gonna take a little longer. The second thing that Jesus, the New Testament teach, is the next life is amazing. Now, this is interesting because I think what you'd expect is that there would be more information about the next life in the New Testament. But one of the things that we don't find is in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament, right? There's not a lot of information. It talks about the next life all the time. It assumes it's the next reality, but there's not a lot of description about what to expect. And the description that is there catches, it tends to be highly symbolic. Like some of the clearest teaching about the next life comes in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, if you've ever read it, is highly symbolic from beginning to end. And when you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, which is the last two chapters of the Bible, we have two chapters on this kind of final state, that the, the new world is coming. And so in this vision that John the Apostle has, he sees, uh, he sees this, this city, this incredible city, coming down out of heaven to earth. Now, I want you to catch that. It's not, the next life, it's not us going up to heaven. We'll talk about this more. It's, it's heaven coming down to earth. Remember, Jesus said, right, well, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we see this new city coming down. It's, the new, it's called the New Jerusalem, and it's incredible. But almost all biblical scholars would see this as highly symbolic, the description. It's as if uh, God is trying to describe the indescribable. Uh, so, for example, uh, as John describes what he sees, he says, the walls of this amazing city are jasper. Uh, he says the, the buildings and even the streets are made of gold. But it's not like gold, like our gold. It's see-through gold. It's transparent Gold. Uh, the foundation stones of the city, they're, they're these huge uh, jewels, uh, kind of the most precious stones on earth, right? So uh, the, the gates of the city, these huge gates, they're made out of single pearls. 
I you stop and think about it, I wanna see the oyster those came from because that's gonna be like huge, you know? I mean, it's, like, you know it's like a horror movie, you know, the invasion of the oysters. And it's just like a huge thing. Um, and so this is like, like this entire book is extremely symbolic. And so, so most scholars, will like, these are symbols. It's like a way of saying, hey, what's the most valuable thing on earth today? Gold, precious stones. These are things, you know, lithium to make more computer chips. But, you know, like, like what's most precious on earth today, that's what we use to do our building projects up there. You know, in the city, um, like, like gold is sort of like the asphalt of the kingdom, right? So it's just like, a, it seems like a very highly, and yet what I want you to catch is for many of us, uh, especially we've been raised in a, a Christian context, this often influences our view of the next life. You know, streets of gold. There's going to be no sea there. There's going to be no ocean there, which is, if you're a surfer, is like super depressing. Um, and so... Uh, but it's not just these images that often influence our view of the future. There's other sources, like another major source of our image of the next life is Renaissance art, right? So a lot of us have been influenced. So you see in Renaissance art, you see these chubby little angels, right? They should have been on a diet a long time ago because it's heaven, they can eat whatever they want. Um, these chubby little guys, they just don't, kind of disproportion. Um, and they're playing harps in heaven. And this is a sort of image that often comes to our mind. We often think of clouds and harps and this sort of thing, right? Uh, another source of our images of the next life is Hollywood. And we've probably all seen movies or TV shows where someone goes to heaven. And what happens? Almost every time the camera gets real fuzzy, uh, it gets uh, kind of a, this white, uh, kind of a white lens is put on. Everything is kind of white. Um, and everything feels very ethereal, uh, not very solid, not very hard, not very tangible. It's, you kind of feel like this is less solid than earth. This is the way it's portrayed. And so uh, if you stop and think about it, uh, this often is what we think. Like, I don't know, when I say the word the next life, or even heaven. Although what we're gonna to see today is that, is that when the Bible talks about the next life, it doesn't really talk in terms of us going to heaven. Like if you die right now and you go to be with Jesus right now, that might be appropriate language to be with Jesus now, but, but at the end of time when Jesus restores all things, it, there's no talk about going to heaven, all right? So, um, but the, it'd be interesting for each of us to take out a piece of paper. We're not gonna do this, but maybe you'll do it in your life group this week. But like when I talk about the next life or talk about heaven, or like what are the images? And frankly, many of the images that come to our minds for me are not very compelling. You know, like it, like it does, like being on a cloud, walking down streets of gold with all these brilliant jewels, like blinding me. Um, this really, I don't find it very compelling. Um, like for me, give me the Alps any day. Right? I, get, let, hey, let, tell me that in heaven, I'm going to hike the Alps, right? Uh, tell me that, uh, that like heaven's gonna be like the sunset over Malibu, but just better, right? Um, tell me that in heaven, there's going to be uh, dirt roads through the redwoods I can ride the perfect motorcycle on. I'm gonna be excited about that. I'm not into harps, right? And I don't wanna hang out with chubby little angels. Like none of these things are very compelling, right? 
And so I think that when we think about the next life, we really need to think through like, what are the images that come to mind? And then we have to ask this question, what does the Bible actually say about the next life? And what's interesting, though, the Bible doesn't give us as much, as many details as I would like. It does give us some very clear, like hard facts, and it does give us some strong suggestions or hints of what the future might be like. And so what I want to do is you'll notice there on your note sheet, you have four bullets. I want to give you four key words that are to help us talk about, like, hey, what does the Bible actually either say hard facts or uh, strong suggestions, right? So uh, the first one. The first word that I'd like you to fill out is the word physical. Why don't you all write in the word physical? And maybe you put in parentheses the word solid. Because like I, I mentioned, I think when many of us think of the next life, I think this is largely due to, again, the artwork, Hollywood, is that we tend to think of sort of a, a cloudy, misty, not a real solid not a real hard future. Like this life is hard, right? You can bang on the bench. I can stop my hands. Like you can touch things. That, but there's almost a sense that we often care that the next life will be very like wispy, like it's, like it's uh, often portrayed in the movies. And yet the evidence of the Bible would be absolutely the opposite of that. It was interesting. I was thinking about it yesterday and I was thinking about uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And it was a, a mythical uh, kind of imaginative story about some people that die and go to the next life. And, and so in this, in this uh, story, they die, they don't realize they're dead, and then it takes them a while. But uh, they're, they're at a bus stop, and this bus comes to pick them up and take them to heaven, right? So when they get to heaven, they're kind of blown away because when they get off the bus, the first thing they see is this huge grove of cedar trees. They're just so beautiful, and everything is so intense. The colors are so intense. It's, it's almost like breath. It's just beautiful beyond anything you've seen here. Uh, these huge trees and forests and grass and so on. But one of the first impressions, he gets off the bus and he starts walking on this deep green, beautiful grass. But he said that the, this key character says that the grass is so hard, it feels like diamonds. And, and, and he's told, yeah, it takes you a while to get used to that here. But it was C.S. Lewis' way of saying, no, the next life is not less physical than this life. It is more physical. It deeper hues, stronger, more physical. And this is what the Bible would suggest. Like, let me give you a couple examples. And when the Bible talks about the next life, like when the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter talk about the next life, they talk about it in terms of this creation, but better. Right? So let me give you an example. There in your note sheet, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about when Jesus comes back. And in this passage, he's going to personify creation. So you know what I mean? Like when I talk about personifying, like in the Old Testament, it says, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Like, you know, it's not really, there aren't going to be really trees with hands, right? It's a way, it's a poetic way of describing great joy, right? And so in a similar way, he's going to personify creation here. And he says, the creation waits in eager expectation. What are they wait? What's this creation waiting for? For the children of God, that's you and me, to be revealed. 
So remember what we've been learning in this, this series, that there's more to you than meets the eye. We're going to talk about that later, but it says the entire creation's like on tiptoe. It can't wait for you to be revealed in all your glory when Jesus comes back. Well, why? Why is the creation waiting? Well, it says because the creation was subjected to frustration. So I want you to circle that word frustration. This creation, Paul says, is not what it was intended to be. We live in what Paul calls a frustrated creation. Uh, in the Greek, it's a hard word to translate, but a, a kind of an unfulfilled, a chaotic. You know, it's not, it's not quite right. And he says, it lives in that frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it. That would be God. So here's the, the storyline is that when we rebelled against God as a race, since we were the kings and queens of the race designed to rule over creation, the whole creation fell with us. The death that we, like it extended to all creation. And so the creation as it is now, even though as beautiful as, as it is at times, it's, uh, Paul says it's, it's living in frustration. It's not what it was created to be. And he says, it's living in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. I don't know if you remember in science class at high school or college, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that everything is winding down. We never go from this point of energy to get more energy. Everything winds down. Everything decays over time. And he says that, that it's, uh, it's in bondage to decay, and, and so it can't wait so it's brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So when Jesus comes back, we're going to be amazing. We're going to talk about that later. And it says the creation can't wait for that day because when we get liberated, the entire creation gets liberated. That's a picture of the next life, right? It's a picture of creation being liberated from its bondage to be what it's supposed to be. Let's look at what Peter says. In 2 Peter, he's talking about when Jesus comes back, and he says, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in heat, in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, God's promise, in keeping with Jesus' promise, we're looking forward, uh, and he, uses, he quotes here, this is language from Isaiah 65 and 66, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new what? Earth. He said, there's no talk here about we're looking forward to going away to heaven. He says, we can't wait for Jesus to come back because this earth is going to be burned up and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, theologians will argue and debate as, based on these kinds of passages from Paul and Peter. Hey, what's going to happen? Is God basically going to take the current cosmos and resurrect it like our bodies get resurrected? Or is he going to kind of wipe it out and start over again? I tend to lean towards uh, kind of the first view. Yeah, it's going to be a, a resurrected creation. But either way, notice how the apostles talk about the new world that's coming. It's not about like clouds in heaven. It's a renewed or a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And catch this. The most important thing about this new creation is the new bodies that you and I are going to get. And we're going to talk about that more later. But for now, the New Testament is super clear that when Jesus comes back, that our bodies are going to be transformed, metamorpho or like metamorphosis, into like his body. 
well, what do we know about his resurrection body? If you think through the resurrection accounts, when Jesus comes back, he's got these new, very cool capabilities. Like he can just show up behind closed doors. You know, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I'm assuming he can fly too, which is one of my dreams. But, um, but if you remember, his body is very physical. Remember, hey, touch my hands. Uh, look at the scars in my side. Uh, do you have any food here? What do you have for dinner? I'll take some fish. Let's have some dinner together. It's very physical. And if you stop and think about it, when you study the first creation, like in Genesis chapter one, that it's very clear that all of creation is leading up to the creation of the first man and the first woman, that this, this world was created for us to fit us. And in the same way, the new creation will be designed to fit us. And if we have these new physical, amazing bodies, we need a physical universe to live in. Amen? Right, so, so, uh, so I think that's where we need to start, that, that uh, this, this, this view, our, our, when you think of the future, we need to think in terms of physical, solid, real, tangible. Number two, or the second bullet there, is the word active. I think for many of us, when we think of heaven, we think of the next life, we think in terms of an eternal lazy boy, right? That heaven is a place where we rest, right? Uh, uh, for others of us, we think of an eternal worship service. So when we, we think about these kinds of things, um, again, not always super compelling. Now, I'm sure that a big part of our experience in the next life will be worship, and it'll be incredible. I'm sure it'll be like a, a high point, right? But again, these images often come from the book of Revelation, very high symbolic book. And I think there's a lot of hints. This is what I would put in the category of strong suggestions or hints in the New Testament that the, the next life, we're gonna be very active, that we're going to have responsibilities. We're going to have important work. We're going to have creative challenges and so on. Uh, let me give you just two or three examples that I think are from the New Testament that suggest this. Uh, the first one that's there in your note sheet is in Luke chapter 19. So let me set it up. So in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He knows that he soon is going to be arrested, crucified, resurrected, and then 40 days later, returned to the Father. So he's traveling. His disciples seem to assume that the kingdom of God in power is coming very quickly. So he wants to dissuade them from that. So he says, let me tell you a story, how it's going to work. And uh, this story is based on first century reality. So we read it as well as a creative parable. In his day, it would have been just very typically just using illustration from everyday life. And so he says, once upon a time, there was a nobleman. This nobleman gets the news that he's been selected to be made king over a certain country, but he's going to need to have to go on a long journey to be commissioned. Now, this is exactly how it worked. Uh, do you remember like King Herod? Uh, king Herod was, was king over Israel at the time of Jesus was born, but there's an emperor, right? The emperor appointed Herod to be king. And so to become like king, he had to go to Rome and get commissioned and so on, right? So it's, it's kind of an example of everyday life. So he says, once upon a time, there was this noble, and he calls in 10 of his top servants and the Greek slaves. He calls in 10 of his slaves, and he says, hey, well, I'm going to go on this long journey, so I'm going to take my money, and I'm going to divide it up. You're all going to get the same amount. That's all, it, the word is a mina, but it's still a lot of money. 
And he says, and so while I'm, while I'm gone, your job is to invest this and manage this money uh, for me. And so he goes on a long journey and eventually he comes back. He calls in the twin servants, slaves, to evaluate them. And they're gonna get either rewarded or they're gonna get disciplined based on how they do. And so Jesus only highlights three of the 10. He says, so the first guy uh, did a great job. In fact, he, he multiplied the investment by 10 times. Okay? Uh, the second guy uh, multiplied his investment by five times. The third guy, remember, they all got the same amount in this story. The third guy, uh, he was lazy, just put the money in a drawer, and so it's not going to go so well for him. But anyway, in this story, I want you to notice what Jesus says to these, uh, these slaves. So he says there, uh, in Luke 19, he says to the first man, the man who's multiplied by 10 times, he says, well done, my good servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of what? Ten cities, okay? Now the next guy comes up. He's, he's multiplied by five times. This is what he said. His, his master answered, uh, you know, he said, you know, well done again. He says, you take charge of what? Five cities. Now, okay, so, no, okay, so the point of this whole short story is very clear. In this short story, Jesus is the nobleman. He's the one that's leaving planet Earth to go to his father, receive a kingdom. He's going to be gone a long time. And when he comes back, uh, he's going to call in his servants or slaves. That's us in this story. Um, and we've all been entrusted with certain gifts and times and resources and finances. And so that when he comes back, we're going to be evaluated on how we served him and advanced his kingdom while he's gone. That's, that's the point of the story. Very, very clear. But here's what I want you to catch. I want you to catch how these servants who did well are rewarded. What I want you to catch is in this story about Jesus coming back and rewarded, they are not rewarded with a lifetime of leisure. They are rewarded with a promotion to increased responsibility and honor. You see that? They're put over, hey, you're faithful with this, you get 10 cities. You've shown yourself wise in the way you've managed your, the resources. And so I want to use that management ability uh, to extend that. You're, you're going to now be over 10 cities. Right? So again, does that prove it? No, I think it's very suggestive, very suggestive. And when you combine it with the next two examples, it gets even stronger. So let's go to the next example. The next example happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. It's a very messed up church. And uh, one of the ways they're messed up is they're suing each other they're taking each other to court in front of non-believers. And Paul says, what is wrong with you? First of all, why are you suing one another? But then if you have a dispute, can't you just get together someone in your church who's smart enough to arbitrate this to, instead of taking it before non-believers? And so he's kind of getting on them. And this is what he says. He says, don't you know that the Lord's people, that's you and I, don't you know that the Lord's people will what? Judge the world. That in this coming next life, he says, you and I are going to be judging, like sitting as judges on the world. Now, what does he mean by that? I don't know. Uh, it'd, be like, it'd be like, this is one of those times where I was like, Paul, it'd be really helpful just to include a few footnotes, you know, when you throw out this kind of thing. But look, it goes on. And he says, are you not, and if you're to judge the world, aren't you competent to judge trivial cases, like in your church. 
He says, don't you know that we will judge what? Angels. Angels. Huh? Uh, Gabriel, come on in. Yeah, I called you here today. Uh, just want to review your resume and how you performed. And really love that whole thing you did with Mary. That was so awesome. But we need to take another look at some of these other times, you know. Um, what is it? I don't know. But Paul is very matter of fact. He's not talking symbolically. He's, he's talking just very, very Don't you know this? Again, it suggests creativity. It suggests using our heads. It suggests uh, uh, using wisdom, right? Uh, being very active. Look at the next example. Now, this was from Revelation. Again, very highly symbolic book. But in this, this is the opening scene in Revelation where John's first called up into heaven. And he, he's there and he sees uh, the lamb who's been slain from the foundation of the world uh, standing by the throne, you know, with God on the throne. And they're being worshiped by the 24 elders. And so one of these elders uh, says, hey, here's why we wor we're worshiping you. He says, I, uh, he says, you have made them, talking about Jesus, you have made them, uh, made them, made, made them, uh, us being the them. He said, you made them, these followers of Jesus, to be three things. You've made them to be a kingdom, and number two, priests to serve our God, and three, they will what? Reign on the earth. You know, often when I talk about the future, I'll use this language that we're, we're called to join him in his mission to bring all heaven and earth kind of healed and restored and, and to rule with him forever. Now, what does he mean, reign, and who are we ruling over? There's a lot of questions here. He doesn't go into detail. But what I want you to catch is all this suggests that the next life is not just an eternal worship service. We're not just lying around loafing on the clouds, that we're going to have responsibility. We're going to require creativity, that we're going to have increased abilities, that we're going to be active, right, which sounds like great news to me. Now, number three, the third word. The third word is the word that we would probably expect is the word spiritual. You know, when we think of the next life, we think of, hey, we go to be with Jesus, that we, we're going to be transformed from the inside out. We'll no longer have our sin nature, so we'll be like him. Uh, and it's going to be a time when we're finally reunited with our creator. You know, in, in a way, uh, when we go to Israel, uh, the very first morning out, uh, when we're kind of looking over this particular valley, um, I, I tell everyone on the trip that the story of the Bible in many ways is the story of the presence of God. It's a story of how we were created to live or dwell in his presence in the garden, how he lost that, then we got kicked out of the garden, how we lost that by our rebellion, and what God is doing in human history through Abraham and through the nation of Israel and through the Messiah to restore us to his presence. And we see him progressively dwelling with us in closer ways, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And then when Jesus comes to tabernacle and then when the Holy Spirit, because we become the temple of the living God. And so we're seeing God coming progressively closer. But of course, the end of the story is that when Jesus comes back, we will be with the one who created us. The greatest joy in our life will be the, 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 the greatest source of joy that we're reunited uh, fully with our creator. And this is exactly what we're told in Revelation 21. Notice this language. He said, uh, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so this, like, you know, as we learned in our last series that, that the presence of God is, is like that living water that is, can, that alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart and that we will finally be restored to our creator. And then the last word is the word restored. When the Bible is talking about the future, it, it's talking about a time of restoration when, when all, all things, all that's wrong is put to right, all evil is removed, that the creation is restored, that we are restored, our relationship with God is restored. Um, you know, in, in, in the Jewish, in, in Hebrew, there's that famous word, you all know it, for peace, the word is shalom. But shalom uh, has so many connotations, it's not just like absence of conflict, but shalom talks about healed, restoration, uh, everything turned back to, to right. And so this is the picture we have in Revelation 21, where John says he hears this voice from the throne saying, he will wipe every tear from their, uh, from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order has, been, has passed away, this fallen creation and he was seated on the throne, that's God, I am making everything new. And so what we see is this picture that the Bible talks about this future that's coming, uh, it's very physical, it's, very, it's a renewed creation or a new creation that we're gonna have activity and responsibilities that's gonna be united to God and actually to one another. We're gonna be transformed internally to be like Jesus and it's gonna be uh, all wrongs turned to right. All right, so some of the images, things that we know from the Bible. So let's go on to point number three. So the first point is that the next, <coughs> next life is real, yeah, Jesus assumes this. The New Testament assumes this. Uh, secondly, it's amazing. We just talked about that. And then the third one, and I think you're going to enjoy this one, uh, some of you more than others. But number three is the next you will be spectacular. Okay, the new version of you, it's going to be amazing, right? And depending on the current shape of how you feel and your health, that's either like just good news or great news. Um, for those of you who are 18, it's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, for those of you who are my age, it's like, hey, this is really good news. Um, so we've already talked about this, that when, we, when, we, when Jesus comes, we're going to be restored, transformed internally to be like him, right? We, we've already talked about that. But what I'm talking about in this point is I'm actually talking about your physical body, that this new body that we are going to receive is spectacular beyond all imagination. So I wanna walk you through this. And for this one, I need to give you a little bit of backstory. So today we started the day with a story about this group of people that have set out on this journey. They're a month in, they know it's gonna be difficult but they're very excited about the high hopes for the future. But now it's a month in. Things are going worse than expected. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They're starting to get super antsy. And so their leaders call this emergency meeting. But in the midst of this meeting, something happens, kind of takes their breath away. They'll never forget. Well, this is my version of a true story from uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 16. And so the scene is the nation of Israel has just come out of Egypt one month before. 
Um, you know, they're very excited, high hopes. But now they're a month in. It's the winter. It's cold in the desert at night. It's getting hot. It's like spring starting to come. Spring's getting hot during the day. But the biggest issue is they've recently run out of water. God had to provide supernaturally. And now they're running out of food. And so it's, it's kind of a crisis. They're on the edge of mutiny. And so God tells, uh, he tells Aaron and Moses, hey, tomorrow morning, gather the people. And here's what you need to tell them. Um, this is how I'm going to provide for them. So he explains how he's going to be providing this new material. They're eventually going to call it manna and how he's going to provide quail. So they call this emergency meeting. But in the midst of the meeting, someone looks up and went, who spots it first? We don't know. But in the distance, they see the glory of God coming. Now, what's interesting about this account is this is the first time in the Bible this is ever described as happening. The first time in the Bible that we've ever seen that the, the manifest glory of God is being revealed. And this is what it says there in your note sheet. In chapter 16, it says, when, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite assembly, they look into the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord. It's all caps. So what does that mean? Yahweh. They see the glory of Yahweh in the cloud. So they had been led by the cloud by day and the fire by night in this previous month, but but they'd never seen the glory of Yahweh being revealed in the cloud. This was something new, and it took their breath away. Now, what's interesting in this passage is it doesn't describe what they saw. It just says that this happened. But in uh, about a month after this, they arrive at Mount Sinai, where they're going to enter into this uh, historic covenant relationship with God. And when they do that, God shows up and he, with his glory, but this time it's described. And so I want you to see it there in Exodus 24. So it says, the glory of Yahweh settled on Mount Sinai, and for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. So what did it look like? Well, it says, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord, of Yahweh, it looked like what? It looked like a consuming fire. Yeah, I thought, if I had something like that, maybe a different translation. Um, yeah, it looked like a consuming fire. So catch this. Remember, when God first revealed himself to Moses, it looked like a bush burning up, right? But, the, but it wasn't burning. But when God shows up to Israel, it's like the whole mountain's on fire. You know, it's like the fire, and for a week, and it's, it's spectacular. It's awe-inspiring. It's so amazing that the people are like, hey, you go up and talk to him. We don't want to go up there. And so uh, from this point on, if you study this throughout the Bible, that when the glory of the Lord appears, we call the manifest glory, when God reveals his glory, that it's often described in terms of fire and light, brilliance, lightning. Uh, you think of the, the, the visions of uh, Ezekiel. He talks about the glory of the, the brightness and so on. Um, we see it in the New Testament. Uh, remember uh, at Christmas time, you know, when, when the shepherds are out in the fields and uh, the angel shows up and remember how it's described. And when they show up, it says, the glory of the Lord shined all around this. Brilliant, like lighting up the sky, right? Um, you think of when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. I put this account here from Luke's gospel. In Luke 9, he says, as he was praying, this is Jesus, he's on top of the mountain, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of what? Lightning. Lightning. In Mark's account, he says his son, his face was shining like the sun. 
Do you remember when, uh, when Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, remember he was traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians, and Jesus appeared to him. It was described as a bright light you could not even look at, brighter than the sun, knocked Paul off his horse, blinded him until he was miraculously healed three days later by Ananias. Right? So we see this, this glory of the Lord. Now, I've taken some time to walk you through Scripture, because, and here's why. Because what the New Testament says consistently is that when Jesus comes back, your body is going to be transformed into the glory of the Lord. And I want you to see this. So in Colossians 3, this is the passage we look at the first week of the series. Remember I said there's more to you than meets the eye. But when Jesus comes back, the whole world's going to see the truth about you. Look what he says. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Remember, he was hidden with Christ in the, uh, uh, with the Father, the right hand of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him, what? In glory. Now, how many of you have pictured that? And Jesus comes out, you picture him in glory, but have you pictured yourself being metamorphosed, transformed, uh, metamorphosis, and, and sharing the glory? If you look back in the Luke 9 passage, it says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, but catches two of the Old Testament leaders, Moses and Elijah, they appeared with him in what? So it wasn't just Jesus that was full of glory. It was Elijah. It was, they were all sharing this glory like angels. You think when angels show up, like at the tomb and so on, the angels show up, often when they, when they don't come as human beings, they show up, you know, they're like brilliant light. And so what Paul is saying is that when, when Jesus comes back, we are physically going to be transformed and share in that glory. In fact, if you look at the next verse, Philippians chapter 3, Paul's even more specific. He says, we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, like take control of all creation, he said he will transform our lowly bodies. And in the Greek, the word for that lowly is like our bodies of humility or poverty, like our impoverished bodies. He will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Look at the next one, Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I, I consider that our present sufferings, he's talking about his sufferings for Jesus. And so, so what are those sufferings? He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten with uh, rods. He's been whipped with whips. He's been imprisoned. He's been uh, hungry. He's been uh, spent nights at sea. Tremendous suffering. But he says, uh, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. What's the next two words? In us, not just to us, in us that men and women, we will be amazing. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said in the very first week of the series, where there on your note sheet, he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And he doesn't mean that in a new age sense, but it's like if we saw them now, like in ancient times, they'd be seen as like gods or goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. He's really saying, 
And then in the Bible, when angels show up in all their glory, what tends to happen? People go face down. They start to worship. And the, and they have, and the angel has to keep like, hey, knock it off. Where I come from, I get in trouble for that, right? We only worship God. But that's the instinct. And that's what, that what, what Lewis is saying based on this teaching of Scripture, that if we could see one another now as we will be, our instinct would be to go face down and start to worship because of the glory. Right? There's more to you than meets the eye. All right, now, okay, so, so that's, that's what the you know, Bible teaches, at least some of it about the next life. The next life is very real. Uh, Jesus bases all of his teaching on it, um, that it's amazing. Uh, we've talked about that, and, and that you in particular, not only on the inside, but on the outside, will participate in this uh, transformation of all creation. And so that leads to a couple important questions. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Supernatural, two key questions. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you both the questions at one time, and then we're going to talk about them together, all right? But I want to ask, because they're, they're, they're kind of the two things that Jesus is highlighting. Uh, number one is, the first question is, how real is the next life to you? So we talked about this last week, that the Bible is like describing reality, but just because we believe something theologically doesn't mean we really uh, live as if it's true. It's like we don't, we don't really live experientially in the reality of that truth. And this is why we have to pray for God to open the eyes of our hearts so we can see what is true. The second question is, are you living this life for the next life? This is Jesus' whole point, is since the next life is real, since it's amazing, uh, since it's coming, since, since this life is short, next life is long, we need to be living this life for the next life. In terms of, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, in terms of our priorities, our values, the way we invest our time, the way we uh, use our gifts, the way we invest our financial resources, we need to be living this life for the next life. So to what extent uh, are you doing that? So two great questions. Now, so let's, let's just explore these for just a minute. So I mentioned this earlier, that for Jesus, when he talks about the next life, um, it's not like you and I talk about it. Like usually when we talk about the next life, it's, it's like a theological doctrine we believe. We, we, talk about it, um, we talk about it like when someone dies, well, now they're with the Lord, you know? And that's a beautiful thing, but often we live our life as if tomorrow is never coming. You know, we, we, live, we live our life as if, this is really the end. Like we live our life for retirement. That's kind of where our, that's where our mentality stops. That's part of our retirement. But what I wish, for Jesus, it was so different. For him, it's like retirement. <laughs> uh, that's a little short-sighted. Uh, after retirement, it's gonna come forever. So you need to be thinking, you need to be thinking beyond retirement. So, so for him, like I've often described it, is that like this life is like the lobby of eternity. You know, like if you go to see a movie, um, you go to the lobby. Why, why do you go to the lobby? You go to the lobby to get your popcorn. You go to your lobby to turn in your ticket to find out which theater, which movie you're going to watch. Maybe use the bathroom. But unless you're 13, you don't go to the lobby just to hang out. All right? <laughs> You go to the lobby to figure out which movie you're going into. And for Jesus, it's like, hey, this life is the lobby 
to forever. Is this life, you decide like where you're going forever. Then you prepare for that. And it was very real for him. Like I said, like, like day following night, it was, he didn't have to stop and think about it. Like, oh yeah, I need to teach on that. It's just like obvious. You know, I talked about uh, this kind of a, it's like for him, it's like, it's uh, like for us, you know, like after high school comes what? College or career or military. It's just, you know, like when you're in high school, it feels super important, doesn't it? It feels like the whole world is this about right now. But the longer you get out of high school, you look back and look at it very differently, don't you? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about this or that. This is what I should have been worried about, right? The longer you get away from high school, you're like, eh, it really wasn't what I thought. And yet when you're in high school, it feels like it's, it's sort of the end of the world. But even in high school, different people approach high school in different ways. Like, follow along with this. Let's imagine two kids, right? Let's imagine two young men. Uh, they're both uh, freshmen in high school. And, uh, and one of them has a very clear picture of their future. That this young man, um, that he, he wants to uh, go through high school. He's already picked out what, two or three of the colleges he hopes to get into because uh, they, they have just this excellent uh, program and that he's interested in. And then, and then after, that, after that, he wants to go to pre-med. He wants to do pre-med there, and he wants to, he wants to become a doctor. Um, and, and he's got a, even a, a specialty in mind. It's just very clear in his head, right? And so very, uh, very clear on the future, got a clear vision. And let's picture another kid, which maybe it's no, no it, maybe the kid's just lazy, right? Maybe he's had every advantage and he's just lazy. Are we allowed to say that these days, politically correct? You know, it's like, oh no, no one can ever be lazy. They just always has to be someone else's fault. But no, um, no, this is like, he's just, just kind of what Proverbs would call a sluggard, right? Um, and so, so maybe it's that, or maybe he really is a kid who's just never had a chance. Like, like no one from his his family has ever even graduated from high school, and he's just never been exposed to the larger world, and so for and no fault of his own. It could be either way, right? But, but this kid, um, he has no real vision for the future, so let me ask you something. Do you think there'll be a difference between the way those two freshmen approach their high school career? Yes. Absolutely, right? I mean, the one kid is going to be studying when all his friends are partying. The one kid is going to be like, how can I fill out my resume to get into the college I want to? What, are the, what sports do I need to play or extracurricular clubs to, to, to round my resume? Because I know it's hard to get in here. The, the one kid is like, he, he's not going to be uh, distracted. Maybe we say drugs or, or alcohol or uh, or maybe get into a gang because he's very clear like, I, about his future. And that future is like a magnet pulling him into his future, right? It's like drawing on, since other things are drawing on him, they're not strong enough. The magnetic pull is this vision of the future. And the other student, of course, is exactly the opposite. They're going through high school. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're just thinking about today. They spend all their time hanging out with their friends. Maybe they're smoking weed. Maybe they're doing video game all night long. They're probably not doing their classes. You know, they're kind of out flunking out of their classes. And what they don't realize is they're destroying their future. They, they just don't realize it. And you say, okay, so... 
What's the difference between those two kids? Why one so motivated and one isn't? It's very simple. One has a clear view of the reality of the future. And the other doesn't. So this is the question that I ask for, have for you is, which student are you more like? How real is the future for you? How is the reality of the next life impacting the way you approach your life today, your values, your priorities, how you invest your time, how you do your relationships, how you use your gifts to advance the kingdom, how you use your finances for kingdom purposes? You see, for for Jesus, he's, he's teaching us the path to life in all its dimensions, and it's always in light of the reality that's coming. So the question is, how real is the next life to you? And then secondly, to what extent are you living this life for the next life? Because this is what what I know about you. The moment you came to Jesus, you crossed over from life to death. From death to life, from, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's really a bummer. That's a... Obviously, we won't be using this tape. Let's just close in prayer. <laughs> Ask for forgiveness, go home. It's like, uh, it's all downhill. The moment, let's try, try it again. Take two, all right? You're flexible. Take two. So when you came to Jesus, you stepped from death to life. And I know that about you. I know that you have an eternal destiny. As sure as we're sitting here, you're sitting here. I know that about you. And here's something else I know about you that you may not know about yourself is that you're going to be evaluated on your performance here. Here's, catch this. One of the things we learned last week, and of course we know this, is that as followers of Jesus, we come to Jesus as a result of God's choice of supernatural work. It's a result of Jesus' death for us that no one becomes a son or daughter of the king based on our performance. We don't earn that, right? But catch this. As sons and daughters of the king, with all the rights and responsibilities that come with that, each of us will be evaluated on the life that we lived, just like the 10 servants or slaves in the parable. I want to share with you a passage of scripture that's kind of rocked my world the last few years. It's, it's there in your note sheet. In 2 Corinthians chapter Paul, Paul, 5, Paul's writing to Christ followers. And he says, he says, we, you know, as followers of Jesus, we must all appear. I want you to circle it all. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so he's talking about the end of time. So that each of us, circle that, each of us may receive what is due us. And that interesting word, in the Greek, that word there is for what's owed us. It's like wages. Like if you work, then this is what's due you. It's your wages. And for the things done while in the body, whether good or what? Bad. So, so what Paul is saying is that as followers of Jesus, that at the end of time, each of us is going to go one-on-one with Jesus to be evaluated as a son or daughter of the king, for how we have lived our life. 
And so, so this is what I know. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were chosen before time. And you've chosen to be forgiven. And you've chosen to be adopted into his family with all rights and privileges. And he's been giving you the gift of the spirit of his son to transform, to lead and guide you. He's uniquely gifted you to make a difference. And with all of that privilege comes high responsibility. To whom much is given, much will be required. And as sure as we're sitting here, that every one of us is gonna go one-on-one with Jesus And catch this, when you go there, you're not going to have your life group around you. You're not going to have your spouse there saying, really, he's not that bad. (laughs) You're not going to have your daughter there saying, "Uh, could you give him a break? He did the best he could, right? Like, we're going to go before Jesus who sees perfectly the truth. And we're going to hear... Uh, either well done or not so well done. And that this, in a way, the Bible doesn't really explain is going to impact our eternity. And so here's the questions. How real is the next life for you? And to what extent, then, are you living this life for the next life? As a child, as a son or daughter of the king, I know this about you that we will all be there. And when we're there, I will know you and you will know me and we will remember this day and we'll remember this conversation and it will be as real then or more real than it is here now. And this should cause us both great eagerness and anticipation, but also strike a little bit of fear in our heart because we're playing for keeps and God has made you to make a difference. And there's a lot at stake in what we're involved in, this kingdom project. And with high, with high, with high calling comes high responsibility. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we come, and these things are so encouraging on the one hand, challenging on another, and then still more, they can be terrifying. Uh, And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that as your word says, that your commands are not burdensome, that what you require of us is not that we figure out uh, all these things on our own, that we just simply listen and follow in our own life, take one step at a time. And as we do, you build a life that has kingdom impact. We we live a life uh, that's really living for eternity. And so we pray, Lord, that as we worship now, as we go to this week, that you be opening our eyes as only you can do to the reality of the next life so that we can live this life in all areas of our life in light of that life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.